All right, settle down. The court will come to order. As always, the last panel at our conference looks ahead to October term 2009. And this year, we not only have new cases, but a new justice. Continuing its trend from last term, the court has further front-loaded its caseload with 46 arguments on the docket before the term has even started and before the long conference. (coughs) Fortunately, unlike last year, we should see many blockbuster constitutional cases, including First Amendment challenges to national park monuments and a statute criminalizing the depiction of animal cruelty, an Eighth Amendment challenge to life sentences for juveniles, a potential revisiting of Miranda rights, federalism concerns over legislation regarding civil commitment of so-called sexually dangerous persons, a separation of powers dispute concerning the agency enforcing Sarbanes-Oxley, and judicial takings of beachfront property. Cato has filed amicus briefs in many of these cases, so I will be paying extra close attention. Joining us to discuss the coming term are Jan Crawford Greenberg, the author of the review article on this subject, as well as Nicholas Rosencrantz and Tom Goldstein. I'm going to go ahead and introduce all of them so we can uh, then have a bit of a, of a free-for-all in this last panel. Jan Crawford Greenberg is an ABC News legal correspondent covering the Supreme Court and national legal issues. Jan has secured recent interviews with five of the court's justices, including Justice John Paul Stevens's first-ever television interview. Her book, Supreme Conflict, The Inside Story of the Struggle for Control of the United States Supreme Court, was published in 2007 and became a New York Times bestseller. And Pache Jeffrey Tubin is the best recent history of the modern court. Before joining ABC, Jan was the national legal affairs reporter for the Chicago Tribune and the Supreme Court correspondent for the News Hour with Jim Lehrer on PBS. She is a graduate of the University of Alabama and thus blogs as much or more on football as on the court and, most importantly, the University of Chicago Law School. Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz is an associate professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. After graduating from Yale College and Yale Law School, he clerked for Judge Frank Easterbrook on the Seventh Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy. From November of 2002 until July of 2004, he served as an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. Uh, He began his scholarly career then by publishing his first two articles in the Harvard Law Review and has recently published his third piece in the Stanford Law Review. I I can only expect the next time I read your bio, you'll have something in the Yale Law Review. Uh, He's also testified as an expert before several congressional committees. Uh, Nick's research interests include constitutional law, foreign affairs law, international law, federal jurisdiction, and statutory interpretation. He also serves on the National Board of Visitors of the Federalist Society and is the faculty advisor to the Georgetown chapter. And I can say I spoke at the Georgetown chapter last spring and was very warmly received. I can only attribute that to Nick's uh, guiding presence. Uh, Tom Goldstein is a partner at Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, where he heads their Supreme Court practice. Uh, In the Supreme Court and elsewhere, Goldstein has briefed and argued cases spanning a broad array of federal law questions, including 17 times before the high court, winning in four of his last five appearances, three by a five-to-four margin. Uh, In addition to practicing law, Tom teaches Supreme Court litigation at Stanford Law School and Harvard Law School, and since 2003, he has been principally responsible for SCOTUS blog, which is widely recognized as one of the nation's leading legal blogs and makes my job so much easier. Uh, Tom graduated from the University of North Carolina and American University's Washington College of Law, after which he clerked for Judge Patricia Wald of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, So let's welcome Jan, and then we'll proceed with our our other panelists. Yes, sir. Well, I think we all should just say roll tide to really, if you really wanted to welcome me. 
Nobody's going to say Roll Tide. Thank you. <laughs> um, I thought what I would do, because obviously this is a, a quite fascinating term for a bunch of reasons, and there's some great cases on the docket. What's it here? I don't know. What do you guys think? Is this okay? Stan? Sit. Stan? <sighs> okay. Mm. All right. I actually like this. I'm going to really lecture now, and then no is not the right answer, as I say to my five-year-old. Um, okay, so let me get the Layla in here. All right. So, um, but obviously, I mean, from my perspective and, and some of the research I've done and obviously the book I did, what's particularly fascinating about this term is that, of course, we have a new member. And as Justice Byron White so famously said, a new justice uh, makes a new court. Now, there are a couple different reasons for that, and that raises really two distinct questions. Number one, who is this new justice? And number two, how is this new justice uh, going to affect this court with, you know, eight other colleagues, uh, none of whom are uh, especially uh, lacking in confidence? Um, so when we think about this term and when we're looking ahead, and then we're thinking, obviously, we're going to look really ahead, uh, I think um, uh, what's fascinating to, to talk about uh, right out the box is Justice Sotomayor and what kind of justice that she's going to be and how we think that she might affect uh, this Supreme Court that's led, of course, uh, by our new Chief Justice, John Roberts. Clearly, um, the person that she's replacing, David Souter, uh, ended up not quite being the justice that conservatives has hoped. And um, to say that's an understatement, I, I appreciate that. Um, but that was one of the things that I really looked at in, in my book on the court was, and to me quite fascinating, was why a court with seven justices nominated by Republican presidents, the Rehnquist Court, become a court that in so many ways disappointed conservatives. You know, in case after case, this was a Supreme Court that more often than not on those big social issues uh, that people, you know, kind of gather around the water fountain or lead the headlines of the newspapers, you know, race, religion, abortion. On all of those issues, this was a Supreme Court led by William Rehnquist, seven justices nominated by Republicans that more often than not took a liberal path. And so, you know, part of what I was looking at in my book was why was that? What happened? And again, um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one uh, was uh, because of a man named David Souter, uh, who in so many ways was not the nominee that George H.W. Bush thought that he was getting. And when we think about what a president can do uh, to shape a Supreme Court, and obviously this is something that I think will be uh, quite useful to think about now because we all expect Barack Obama to get certainly... Um, at least two and perhaps three nominations, and then if he's reelected, uh, perhaps even more than that. Um, at that moment in history, when David Souter came onto the Supreme Court, George H.W. Bush uh, was presented with an incredible opportunity. You know, he was going to be replacing a liberal icon in the great liberal William Brennan. And so this was a moment when conservatives were thrilled and liberals were predictably horrified. Uh, which is why you saw, when Souter was nominated, women's groups uh, printing up flyers saying, stop Souter now or women will die. I mean, liberals really believe that David Souter would be that decisive conservative vote, and conservatives really believed that he would as well. Um, but instead, uh, David Souter, really from the moment of his confirmation hearings, 
uh, began sounding a little bit like the justice he was nominated to replace. Uh, he started talking about uh, if legislatures don't act, then courts must step in to fill the vacuum. Uh, things that uh, you know conservatives don't particularly uh, want to hear. And sure enough, by his uh, second full term on the court, he was voting in a much more uh, liberal way than anyone would expect. And by the end, as we all know, he was a reliable liberal vote on that court. Um, and some of this really struck me during Sotomayor's confirmation hearings over the summer because her responses to the questions, and again, thinking, thinking about uh, the Senate being solidly democratic, many of her responses were coy. Some were almost disingenuous. And some of the cases this term, I think, will be fascinating uh, to see how she does come down on some of these issues that were uh, really raised during her confirmation hearings. For example, the use of foreign and international law, um, which was, I thought, her response to that in questions, and I, I'll just read uh, how she handled it, uh, was, was particularly striking. Um, there was one exchange uh, with Senator Cornyn from Texas, Republican, obviously. And in this exchange, she sounds really almost like she's right there with Scalia and Thomas. Uh, no, no foreign law at all. She says... Um, foreign law cannot be used as a holding or a precedent or to bind or influence the outcome of a legal decision interpreting the Constitution or American law that doesn't direct you to that law. So, you know, that sounds like, yeah, right, you can't use it. But let that settle in for a minute. She's saying foreign law cannot be used as a holding or a precedent or to influence the outcome. And then in a subsequent question and response, she sounds very different and sounds more like the liberal that I think we really do expect her to be. She says, in my experience, when I've seen other judges cite to foreign law, they're not using it to drive the conclusion. They're just using it to, to point something out about a comparison between American law and foreign law. But they're not using it in the sense of compelling a result. Obviously, response that suggests that foreign law can be very useful in determining or helping a judge or justice uh, decide uh, an outcome of a case. And one case this term, will, that will be, I think, quite pivotal. Uh, that's a case involving uh, whether or not life sentences for juveniles who are convicted of non-homicide crimes uh, violates the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment, uh, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. There are two cases, one's Graham versus Florida and one's Sullivan versus Florida. Both involve life sentences for juveniles both uh, who were convicted of non-homicide crimes. Terrence uh, Jamar Graham was 17 when he got life in prison without parole for a series of robberies. He had violated his proba probation for an earlier armed burglary. And then Joe Harris was given life without parole for um, sexual battery when he was 13. Now, these cases raise slightly different questions. Um, there's a wrinkle in the Sullivan case in that his crime was committed 20 years ago. Uh, in the Graham case, uh, the, it, I think it's a little more specific, the, the question is presented. But they both get to the question of whether or not the use of foreign law is appropriate, and if so, to what extent. The state courts uh, in Florida went to great lengths to discuss foreign law, pointing out that the United States now has 220 2,200 juveniles serving life sentences, uh, but outside the United States, 12 juveniles are serving life sentences in the rest of the world. Uh, the international community condemns 
this punishment. Now, this case, again, is a natural outgrowth of Roper, uh, where the court uh, did rely on foreign law when it struck down the death penalty for killers who commit their crimes when they're juveniles. So this will, I think, give our new Justice Sotomayor really uh, her first chance to illuminate what she meant in those somewhat confusing uh, and some have suggested, I think, slightly disingenuous comments during her confirmation hearings. Um, the other question we're thinking about how a new justice can make a new court uh, separately from the way that justice is going to be as a justice. And unlike, of course, David Souter, I think we have a much clearer idea of the kind of justice Sotomayor will be because of her experience on the trial courts um, and, and the, uh, the federal appeals courts. But... Um, the other open question is what that justice will do to that court, the new justice making a new court. How will she step in, cause justices to perhaps rethink their views, uh, reposition themselves, create new alliances? And that happens repeatedly. I think that one of the more striking examples uh, was when Justice Thomas joined the court. Now, I've talked a lot, and some of you uh, I know have heard uh, me tell this story, but Again, I think it's useful when we think about um, how we kind of analyze the way a new court will look uh, and why we should not ever assume anything. Um, when Justice Thomas joined the court, again, thinking back, another historic moment for George H.W. Bush. The year before, he'd replaced William Brennan with Davis Souter. The following year, another liberal giant, Thurgood Marshall, retires he nominates Clarence Thomas. Again, conservatives believe that this was the moment uh, that they had been waiting for to undo all these rulings of the Warren court. Um, and after those brutal confirmation hearings, Clarence Thomas joined that court. And the storyline very quickly developed, if you recall, that he was just following Scalia. That, um, you know, whatever Justice Scalia said, the brilliant conservative intellect, Thomas was right there. Uh, with him. And in the research, I came across articles even in the Post that described uh, quotes describing Justice Thomas as a lackey of Justice Scalia, a lapdog of Justice Scalia. And that story is grossly, demonstrably, and I think offensively false. And if anything happened that term, it was Justice Scalia who would change his votes after the conferences to join Justice Thomas, not the other way around. But what happened that term was, you know, people would see Thomas and Scalia voting together and began writing that Thomas was following Scalia. But in case after case, from Thomas's first day, his first conference on that court, he was willing to stand alone as a forceful, independent voice. And then we would see Justice Scalia subsequently sometimes change his vote to side with Justice Thomas from his first day. This is all in the papers of Harry Blackman. Say what you will about Justice Blackman as a justice, but he was one hell of a note taker. And in the conference, he would write down what each justice would say uh, about a particular case, and then he would write a plus or a minus if you, they thought the case should be affirmed or reversed. So you can look at Justice Blackman's conference notes and then follow that to see how the justices then kind of end up at the end. And he saved everything, every memo, everything. So, you know, it's really kind of shocking, actually, that not particularly flattering of Justice Blackman, including the questions his law clerks uh, wrote for him to ask um, on the bench. 
But in that first conference, Justice Thomas had a case, the court had a case called uh, Fuchsia versus Louisiana and involved an inmate who'd been found not guilty by reason of insanity and he wanted to get out of the mental institution in Louisiana. The state wanted to keep him there. Rehnquist leads off the conversation, voting kind of surprisingly for the inmate. Conversation goes around the table. Each justice falls in line behind the Chief Justice Rehnquist. It got to Justice Thomas, the junior justice, his first conference to cast a vote in a case. And he paused and he said it was a very difficult case. Again, this is in the Blackman papers. Um, but he was going to cast his vote with Rehnquist. He couldn't sleep that night. The next morning, he went back to see William Rehnquist and he said, That was wrong. I threw in the towel. That's not how I saw that case. I want to change my vote. So Rehnquist said, Okay, except for you know, Rehnquist, he had that okay, that deep voice that everyone, you know, people who clerk for Rehnquist weirdly kind of, they always talk like Rehnquist. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, so he said, you know, fine, uh, write your dissent. So Thomas uh, writes this dissent, circulates it around six weeks or so later. The chief justice sends a note around to the, to the conference. He's going to change his vote. A couple days later, Scalia sends a note around. He's changing his vote. A couple days after that, Kennedy now the court, you know, our human jump ball. Um, he sends a note around. He, too, is going to change his vote. So that case that started out 9-0 in the conference, next morning 8-1, ended up being 5-4, and it happened repeatedly that term. Clarence Thomas was willing to stand alone, take these forceful, independent views, and then Tom Scalia or another justice would change their mind to join him. But again, of course, the storyline was that Thomas was, was following with Scalia. Instead, what was happening was that that was creating this internal dynamic. And again, this is in the Blackman papers, too, where um, Justice O'Connor, you know, the swing vote, the moderate, the former state legislator, the one who kind of wanted to balance, started to back away. And you can see it in all her memos that term. She's almost bristling with some of these conservative views, particularly on habeas, that term, that Justice Thomas is writing and advocating. She did not join a single dissent. He wrote that term, even though she was often on the same side of an issue, but she never would sign on to one of his dissents. So that term, we saw a staunch, solid, forceful, independent, conservative Clarence Thomas join the court. And completely counterintuitively, we saw that court turn a bit to the left, putting Roe versus Wade on more solid ground than ever before with Casey, that was that term, Lee versus Wiseman, outlawing school prayer graduations. That year, the court didn't turn, of course, to the right like everyone thought, and in fact, Justice O'Connor began her drift to the left, where really she stayed until the end. So this term, um, and I think, again, I know this is looking ahead, but I think when we look ahead, it's helpful to look back. Uh, so that we don't, you know, get too far ahead in thinking that we know a justice is going to be a certain way or a court is going to be a certain way. And we already have seen now Justice Sotomayor on the bench uh, in her first argument, which I must admit I was just dying to see how she was going to be. Uh, would she be forceful? Uh, would she just kind of stand back and take stock of things? Was she going to jump right in and uh, perhaps start uh, as conservatives hope, uh, causing Justice Kennedy to feel a little more at home permanently in the conservative uh, wing of that court. When Justice Alito joined the court, against someone I think with you know, kind of comparable experience uh, on the right from Sotomayor on the left, he um, deliberately decided that he would not be aggressive at oral argument his first year, that he was going to stand back, uh, kind of just get a lay of the land. 
he felt like he'd made a mistake when he joined the Third Circuit uh, because he immediately started casting votes for rehearing uh, or on banc uh, before he'd even really heard an argument. And that offended some of his new uh, appeals court colleagues. So he didn't want to make that mistake when he joined the Supreme Court, and he was quiet his first term. Uh, now he's not. He's very effective on the bench, and certainly with Justice Kennedy, I think. But Sotomayor surprised me. She was quite uh, feisty, I thought. Tom, you were, you guys were all there. She, um, in the campaign finance case, which Tom's going to be talking about, uh, in, in kind of aggressively talking about what was the record below uh, and, and why was this even an issue, and then at one point even saying, you know, maybe the Supreme Court had even created this mess because, you know, it was the court that said corporations should be treated as persons. So I was kind of like, whoa, she's uh, really, you know, she's going to have something to say here. Um, but again, I mean, this term, uh, as I said, there are several cases that will give us a chance, not only for the court, major cases, as Ilya said, uh, for constitutional grounds, major separation of powers case that we're going to hear some more about, of course, to the campaign finance case, a frontal assault on campaign finance laws, uh, but also will give us our first window into new Justice Sotomayor, her use of international law, her use of stare decisis in a case involving Miranda, uh, also from Florida this term. So the criminal docket, I think, will be really interesting to watch. Uh, but again, I'm going to sit down, of course, because I know Ilya's like getting the hook out. But um, I just would say, when we think about a justice's first term, um, it's the first term. And it will be many uh, more terms, I think, before a real snapshot of that Roberts court with that new Justice Sotomayor uh, will be painted. And um, it may only be a court that is intact for one term, because I... Uh, I think we've all seen the news that Justice Stevens has hired only one law clerk. Uh, so we may be in our next uh, uh, discussion next year at this time uh, thinking about the new Roberts Court uh, with another a new justice. And that's all. Thanks. Great. So thank you for having me here. I've spoken on this panel a couple years ago, and so I'm happy to be back. I was in the green room just a few minutes ago talking to Jan and saying, you know, I love doing the looking ahead panel because you can't really be wrong. Right? You're talking about cases that haven't happened yet. You can't really be wrong. And if you make predictions, you know, by the time the case comes down, nobody remembers really what, it, what you said about it. So it's really, it's very, you know, stakes are low for this panel, and I, I like that. I was just in the middle of finishing that thought when Roger walked into the green room and said, um, so you were on this panel two years ago, weren't you? And didn't you mispredict Medellin? Didn't you say it was going to come down the other way? So. <laughs> So this is obviously a very perilous looking ahead panel for that reason, but um, nevertheless... You to tell me that when I was figuring out who to invite. Exactly. So despite that history, I'm going to recklessly offer another prediction this year, and we'll see what happens. Hopefully you will have all forgotten it by the time the case comes down. Um, but uh, So I'm going to talk just about one case in detail, and it's uh, Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, PCAOB. I chose it first because I think it might be the most important case of the term, but it's the one that doesn't, it's not obviously important. So I wanted to, br to bring out its importance. Um, second, I thought it might be of particular interest to this audience because Cato filed a brief in the case. 
Um, and third, I can just offer a little bit of inside baseball about this one that you might find interesting. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I think the court should think about it, then I'm going to recklessly offer some predictions about it, and hopefully you will forget those promptly. Um, here are the facts. So the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 creates this entity, the PCAOB, to oversee the audit of public companies that are subject to the securities laws. Now, the corporate types here in the audience can tell you quite what an important function that is. But this case doesn't uh, um, concern any particular action of the PCAOB. It's bigger than that. It concerns the very existence of the PCAOB as set up by Congress. In particular, the issues have to do with the appointment and the removal of the members, the appointment and removal of the um, folks on the board. So first, appointment. PCAOB members are appointed by the SEC. Now, the appointments clause provides, hopefully maybe you all have your Cato constitutions. You can follow along. You really shouldn't leave home without those. The president shall nominate and bind with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for which, and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. Okay. So the first issue in the case is whether the PCAOB members are principal officers, the folks talked about in the first clause, who have to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. If so, then the thing is unconstitutional, right, because they're appointed by the SEC. Um, on this point, I think the court probably should say no, and I think they probably will say no. Uh, the PCAOB is um, supervised largely by the SEC. SEC um, exercises a lot of control over the PCAOB in a lot of different ways, and for that reason, I think the court's likely to say that they're inferior officers. Okay. That doesn't, a that doesn't end the appointments clause question, though. Inferior officers can be appointed by heads of departments, but the petitioners say uh, the SEC, is the SEC a department, really? And even if it is, quite who is its head? Is the commission, the whole commi commission as a whole, the head of the SEC? Um, the petitioners insist not. This is not a department, and the commissioners are not its head, or the commission's not its head. This is uh, clever at first blush and textually seems kind of plausible at first blush. Um, but ultimately, even the dissent in the court below didn't buy this, and I doubt that the court will buy it either. So I think the court's going to have no trouble saying the SEC is a department, the commissioners are its head, and so they can appoint uh, folks like the PCAOB. That's appointment. Now, what about removal? The Constitution doesn't specify removal rules in the same way that it specifies appointment rules. Um, but there are inferences that we can draw from more general provisions. So the Constitution provides the executive power shall be vested in a president. The president can't execute all laws personally, so he delegates law execution to various officers of the executive branch, but it remains his personal obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And so he's got to be able to control those folks. 
He has to be able to control those folks in order to fulfill that take care obligation. He can give them direct orders and tell people what to do. But what if they disobey? Uh, the ultimate control is the removal power. Right? He gives them an order, they say no, and he fires them, and that's how he manages to control the whole executive branch and thus take care that the laws are faithfully executed. So from this chain of inferences, we get the general principle that the president can remove executive branch officers. Now, the court has held that Congress can put some restrictions on that. So can put restrictions on the president's power to remove certain sorts of officers like the heads of independent agencies. The SEC is such an agency, and the president can only remove SEC commissioners for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. So this is like a, this is for cause removal. He can remove them for cause. Now, I imagine that many people in this room have constitutional doubts about this sort of thing at all. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, you know, at least one or two justices agree with you, but I'm afraid that's water under the bridge. The PCAOB, though, goes one giant step further. So the PCAOB folks are, can only be removed upon a finding of, uh, upon a finding that the member willfully violates the act or abuses his authority or fails to enforce compliance with a rule or standard without reasonable justification. Okay, so that's also a for-cause removal provision. Sounds a little like the other one. But these folks can only be removed by the SEC. So these folks are two levels removed from the president. There are two levels of for-cause removal between these folks and the president. The president can remove SEC folks for-cause. The SEC can remove these folks for-cause, but the president is two steps away from them. And as far as anyone can tell, this is the first time in constitutional history that anyone has ever been given this sort of double insulation from presidential removal and thus presidential control. So I predict the court is going to balk at this novel arrangement. I don't think the court is going to go down that road. Um, I think at least a few justices may write a, quite a strong opinion, possibly intimating that Morrison v. Olson should be overturned uh, and maybe laying down some kind of clear rule about how removal has to work. Uh, but the crucial fifth vote is going to come from Justice Kennedy, who will, I'm afraid, uh, write separately. And um, I predict he will treat us to some soaring rhetoric about uh, separation of powers and whatnot, uh, but not a fifth vote to uh, overrule Morrison v. Olson or to lay down a particularly bright line rule. Uh, so I'm going to predict the PCAOB does end up getting struck down. Cato's position prevails, uh, but the law of removal will not be too much clearer than it is today, I'm afraid. Now, so just a little bit of inside baseball on this case. Um, in this case, it's interesting to track the position of the administration, so Democrats were vehement in their opposition to the unitary executive when the president was George W. Bush. Um, but presidents of both parties are generally quite keen to preserve the prerogatives of the office, at least when they hold the office, right? 
So there could be some internal tension in the administration about, I don't know this, I'm speculating, there could be some internal tension about quite how to handle this case. Um, and that internal tension might play out in tension between the Office of Legal Counsel and the Solicitor General's office, for example. So OLC usually thinks of itself as the guardian of separation of powers and the guardian of presidential prerogatives, the unitary executive, and so forth. I suspect OLC may well have some problems with this PCAOB arrangement. The SG is, has two, um, two conflicting SG principles that are in a bit of tension in a case like this. As a general matter, the SG um, defends any act of Congress that is defensible, where it thinks it can make plausible arguments. Um, but that principle usually gives way when the issue is an issue like this, an issue about presidential power. Uh, and so the SG, so, so, um, so the SG is in a bit has a bit of um, uh, conflicting principles at work here. The SG has thus far filed a brief um, arguing that the court shouldn't grant cert in the case. Now you can see how that might be the ideal outcome for the SG. So they get they are defending the law in a sense, defending it, and they're defending the win below in the D.C. Circuit, but they're not really risking a, uh, another Supreme Court opinion that could, you know, right, winning at the Supreme Court and thus having another opinion on the books that would be bad for the executive branch. So in a sense, that could have been the best outcome for the SG, but that's not what happened. So the court has granted cert, and now the SG has to figure out quite what kind of a brief to file in the case, and that'll be interesting to see, I think. Finally, I'll just give you one uh, last note of inside baseball. This one has a sort of a personal twist. The judge on the – so this case comes from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, the judge on the D.C. Circuit who wrote a superb dissent in the case is a friend of mine. And the author of the excellent petitioner's brief is also a friend. I met them both in the summer of 1998. I had just finished my 2L year at Yale, and I was looking for something to do in D.C. for the summer. And I heard about this odd office, which was part of the executive branch, but somehow independent of it. And as far as I could tell, it seemed to be investigating some sort of obscure land deal in Arkansas. <laughs> so this office was the Office of Independent Counsel, and Ken Starr, the author of the petitioner's brief, was the independent counsel. Brett Kavanaugh, the D.C. Circuit judge who dissented in the PCAOB case, was an associate counsel in that office. And uh, I was a confused summer intern laboring under the naive impression that the executive power shall be vested in a president. So that office and that summer are, of course, exhibit A for unintended consequences that can follow from rendering executive officers independent. And it's also exhibit A, I think, for the law students in the room for the axiom that constitutional structure matters. So even if you don't care much about accounting standards, you should care a lot about this case. Thank you. Oh, thanks.
Well, it's terrific to be back at Cato and to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court term. Uh, Cato is a fantastically important voice at the Supreme Court principle uh, on a huge array of matters, and some of them have been mentioned by Ilya and, uh, and other panels today, um, uh, particularly in an era in which so many constitutional questions are still open uh, for debate and discussion. Uh, when we were planning this panel, uh, I uh, said, look, well, decide what other people are going to talk about, and I'll talk about the cases that remain. The Supreme Court has granted cert in about 60 cases. Uh, Jan mentioned uh, uh, in, in passing in the context of uh, Justice Sotomayor a pair of cases, Graham and Sullivan from Florida. Uh, we've I had a... I the Miranda case. It, three. It was a... a I <laughs> devoted full sentences to... Uh, to uh, the, those two companion cases, and then we've had uh, a tremendously uh, thorough explanation of the what I call the peekaboo case, um, uh, uh, and that leaves 61 cases to talk about. <laughs> um, I'm going to, in the 12 minutes that I have allotted, simply name them. Uh, <laughs> the cases that I think will come out uh, well, I'll say in an excited voice. If I'm worried, I'll... Uh, I think I'll talk about four cases that I think are of particular importance, and then we'll, we really are focused on leaving time for some questions so that if there are other cases that interest you, uh, we'll have the chance to talk about those as well. Uh, two of them are criminal cases. One is Comstock, and the reason I like Comstock, it's like the Peekaboo case because it really is a case about first order principle in constitutional law. When William Rehnquist was uh, the Chief Justice and Sandra Day O'Connor was on the Supreme Court, there was a sort of states' rights revolution, right, that that turned out to be more of a states' rights petty insurrection. We didn't really get behind the idea that states, that there was a, a when Congress said, uh, the, the framers said that Congress has certain powers, that they weren't kidding. Uh, and this case tests that principle to some extent. Congress passed a law uh, called the Adam Walsh Amendment, and it says, look, if someone is about to be released from federal prison and uh, you, the attorney general can provide clear and convincing evidence to a judge that they present a real risk that they're going to commit a sexual offense, that they can be held in uh, civil confinement in the federal system. The Supreme Court's already tackled the question of whether due process allows that in the state system. But it presents the fascinating question of, is there a federal power to hold people in commitment uh, because of the prospect that they will commit a sexual offense, even if that sexual offense wouldn't be a federal crime? And so the question is, does the commerce power and the other powers that allow Congress to create and define federal crimes have with it, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, the antecedent, the, uh, 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 the related power to order the confinement of these individuals? It's a really interesting question. You could see people having tremendously different views on it. And the Court of Appeals here, the Fourth Circuit invalidated the statute saying, look, this is the job of the states to address this. The residual police power exists in the states. Um, and uh, we take seriously the Supreme Court's uh, indications that there is something to the idea that Congress's powers are defined and aren't just whatever Congress happens to feel like it wants to do. The, the contrary view points to cases like Rach, which read, this is the medical marijuana case from the Supreme Court, that read Congress's powers very, very broadly, and the sort of pragmatic notion of the Supreme Court that, gosh, do we really want 
uh, people to be released onto the streets if there is genuinely clear and convincing evidence that they're going to commit sexual offenses upon their release. Uh, so that's, a, uh, I think, a fascinating case for the ongoing debate about the relationship between the federal government and the states. Uh, another criminal case, this one involving the First Amendment, is the Stevens case. This case involves crush videos. If you don't know what a crush video is, you are a good person. Uh, <laughs> It turns out that the very people that the government wants to hold in civil confinement in the Comstock case, the first one, are looking at crush videos. Crush videos are, and I swear somebody told me this is true, I promise you I have no first-hand knowledge of this, there is a set of fetishists, if that's a word, out there who uh, watch videos of women in high heels crushing small animals. This is how they derive some form of pleasure. Um, none of them are here. You don't know any of these people. But Congress was concerned enough about it and viewed this as sur- sufficiently horrific that they passed a law saying that these crush video things, if distributed in interstate commerce, are uh, illegal. Except it wrote a broader law than that. And it said, rather than trying to define crush videos, it said any depiction of animal cruelty distributed in interstate commerce without some uh, you know, social, uh, the, the piece having some social merit, Uh, is a crime. And the position of the federal government is that depictions of animal cruelty receive no First Amendment protection whatsoever. They are like child pornography. And this raises really interesting questions about a bullfighting video and that sort of thing. And in this case, and as full disclosure, we represent the defendant in this case, the, uh, this is a case with dogfighting videos. We say that the videos are about how you know dogfighting is bad and how you should train dogs. The government's position is that that's a bunch of dogs fighting. And uh, I don't see a lot of instructional component to it, but we think we're right. The... Put that to the side, please. Put that to the side. Uh, But it raises a fascinating question about the categories under the First Amendment that receive not balancing, we're not trying to weigh one thing or the other, but what things just simply are outside the bounds uh, of the First Amendment. Uh, Another very interesting case, we now turn slightly from the one part of the First Amendment to another one, we turn to religion. And I really think that religion is going to be a hot topic in the Roberts Court. Conservatives obviously very frustrated in the area era of Sandra Day O'Connor with either a wishy-washiness or a failure to recognize that the, in the view of uh, conservatives, uh, that the wall separating church and state erected principally in the Warren Court era was set too high and that it obstructs things that the framers did not intend and good work between the government and religious institutions. Uh, This is a case involving a cross in the Mojave Desert. Uh, Not many people see it. One guy did, and that's part of the issue. So this is a fascinating case. There's a cross in the Mojave Desert, and uh, it's uh, invalidated by the Ninth Circuit as an establishment of religion because it's on a federal park. Fair enough. Congress's response is, we're not going to tear the cross down. What we're going to do is, and we're dead serious about this, we're going to take the plot of land that the cross is on, and we're going to, and we're, we're getting rid of it now, we're going to give it to the veterans of foreign wars because it's a war monument, and they're going to trade us some land. Now, we admit 
that it's kind of a donut in the middle of the park, a donut hole, and the, there's no way to get to it for the other property owner, but we don't own it anymore. Now, just to make sure that everything's okay, we are putting a condition on it that you can't take the cross down, and if you ever did, we would get the, li- the, the land back. But it's not ours anymore. So one of the questions is, are you serious? Uh, like, how... I mean, come on, right? I think that's the second question presented. Oh, come on. Uh, So there is an interesting establishment clause question about how far the government has to be away from ownership of the property. that was one of O'Connor's establishment Exactly, exactly, right. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And there is a doctrine that says even though she's retired, you still have to ask her. Uh, (laughs) Right? It's just that settled in the establishment clause jurisprudence. It raises itself all kinds of structural constitutional article <laughs> questions. Um, but the other question is one of standing. And as, as people have learned, uh, standing can have a big effect on substantive law because if it's, you know, do, these sort of door-closing, door-opening uh, rulings make it easier to attack statutes, encourage litigation, discourage litigation, and can limit the, the prospect that any particular government inval- uh, action could be invalidated. So we have here a plaintiff who used to work in the park, I think, and his, he's, he, he promises he's going to come back someday and, uh, you know, we'll see the, the cross. And, but doesn't have a religious objection, interestingly, to the cross. He says, cross, oh, that's cool. Uh, but what he does object to is that the government refuses to put up other religious symbols. And so his, his objection is more ethical and... Uh, sort of sociopolitical than it is religious. And so it's an interesting question. When you're talking about doctrines that don't involve, you know, somebody's not going to have their lo- arm lopped off by the cross. St- the standing is not going to, or I hope, uh, is not uh, judged by some physical injury that you can measure. Instead, it's going to be some kind of offense that's taken if there's going to be standing in these kinds of cases. And the question is, what kind of offense qualifies to trigger uh, the Article Three requirement that there be a case in controversy uh, between the plaintiff and the government? So that's an interesting standing and substantive uh, religion case. Uh, maybe the last case that I'll mention in order to make sure that we are saving uh, plenty of time for questions is a takings case. Uh, we all are very familiar, or lots of people are familiar, with the Kelo versus New London case, widely regarded as kind of a debacle for people who believe in property rights, in which we learned that a public purpose is something that involves something that's out in the public. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, look, if the government is here trying to uh, facilitate urban renewal, then it can take the home and make the shopping center or whatever out of it. You have to pay just compensation, but it falls within the bounds of what's permissible under the takings clause. This is not so interesting. But nonetheless, the takings clause, you remember in the wake of Kelo, people were really, really, really upset. It caused tremendous outcry. It actually, I personally think, kind of worked beautifully. The, there was a lot of legislative effort, a lot of local legislative effort to constrain these sorts of takings. Uh, and so people are much more focused on the takings clause. This is uh, a, a, an un, a sort of unusual, but you would have thought resolved questions under, under the takings clause. And that is what happens when good judges go bad? And what happens when judges are involved in takings? It involves littoral rights. Uh, if you don't know about crush videos, presumably at least you know what littoral rights are. Um, littoral rights, it turns out, are if you, and you know about this if you have beachfront property. Uh, and uh, people do, and people in Florida especially. And the, here's the issue. 
In Florida, if you have beachfront property, it turns out that we have a problem with erosion. And so some of your property is going away. The state of Florida, the government is here to help you, and it has decided to help you uh, with erosion and is going to put in more sand to fill in. The state is not feeling quite as generous as we might hope, though, and the land that it recreates through filling in is going to belong to the state. So your formerly beachfront property is now close to the beach property, uh, which is not quite the same thing, it turns out. And so you, right, the, there is this thing about having beachfront property. Um, and uh, so the, the Florida passes a law, and the people, the beachfront property owners are upset, and so they have uh, lawyers, and uh, they, the lawyers sue. It generates the most unusual suit. Stop the beach is the name of the case. I would have thought people would have wanted to encourage the beach. Uh, so I haven't quite figured that out. The only thing I can think is that there's some sort of comma or exclamation mark uh, missing. This, so it's like, stop the beach, right? It's, it's fading away. Uh, so, but the case is called Stop the Beach. Um, and, it, and it presents the accusation about the Florida Supreme Court that there were these recognized littoral rights under Florida law and that when the case got to the Florida Supreme Court, the Florida Supreme Court sort of did away with all of these pre-existing common law rights and upheld the Florida statute. So the allegation is, first, the Florida Supreme Court is out of control, and second, that in being out of control, uh, it is an agent of the state, and it triggers the takings clause, that this is a, a judicial taking, and that's something the Supreme Court has never decided, it turns out, whether judges, as opposed to the executive branch through a regulation, for example, as opposed to the legislature in passing a law, is taking property. Now, the, the accusation against the Florida Supreme Court is not an unknown one. There was some case involving an election. We have this thing, I have this thing called SCOTUS blog. Uh, we call the Supreme Court of the United States SCOTUS. Uh, at the time, there was sufficient concern about what was going on in Florida by some that it got the, the acronym SCOFLAW, uh, the Supreme Court of Florida. And so the, the, the question of what the Florida Supreme Court was up to and whether or not it violates the takings clauses in uh, the Stop the Beach case. So there's lots of other stuff going on at the Supreme Court. Very, very interesting cases. A lot of criminal law stuff. Uh, but maybe in order to save time for questions, I'll stop with those four. And if there are other things that you all know are before the court and you want to ask about, we'll talk about them. Well, um, as uh, as you can tell, we uh, we, we save our, uh, our our most entertaining speakers for for last. Um, I know Gene Myers uh, watching out there in the hall when I'm doing Federalist Society speeches around the country and debates. Um, I, I always rip off all of Tom's jokes, so I'm glad I have more to add to my to my list. Um, one question, though, is, is it literal? Is it littoral or literal? I'd always pronounce it literal. I'm kind of making stuff up here. Uh, well, so, we, we knew that. But. Right, exactly. I, it, it can be whatever will make you happy. Okay. Uh, um, literal sounds probably right. Uh, uh, though misspelled. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and my question for Nick is, will Kennedy and his separate uh, opinion in soaring rhetoric quote Cato's brief? Well, let's hope so. Okay. Uh, quote Cato's soaring rhetoric within his own, perhaps. Um, uh, any any comments that the panelists want to make uh, before we open it up? 
Um, I guess maybe to reach back to Jan's really interesting discussion about what effects Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor might have, the the one irony I think you might well see focusing, so you could talk about, you, you have to figure out who she is, and then you have to think about, okay, is there stuff she might vote differently on than Justice Souter might? And I think that's particularly true in things that might involve the criminal law where he was really an idealist and she was a federal prosecutor and a district judge who might be more pragmatic. So that might move the court a little bit to the right. But the other place that I think just on in terms of the relationships, the big picture about what happens in the building, we have to recognize really with uh, David Souter and then John Paul Stevens, who would be the next retirement, those are those folks had incredible respect inside the building as genuine you know, gentlemen, very thoughtful very balanced, very even-handed, and they had worked with Justice Kennedy, for example, for in excess of a decade, and Justice Stevens still there, but maybe not for, for too many terms longer. And the de- their departure, even if replaced by somebody much more liberal, I don't know if you could get much more liberal than John Paul Stevens, but you, you know, if replaced by somebody more liberal, the critical point for me is that they just don't, imagine people that you've worked with for 10 years or family members that you trust, that you have conversations with. When that relationship is broken and you introduce somebody new into the equation, they just, they, they can't possibly be as persuasive. And so I think the ironic effect of new appointments replacing Justice Stevens and Justice Souter will be to see the court gravitate to the right because the fo- some of the folks that would have the greatest respect among Justice Kennedy and other members of the court on the right just you can't have those kinds of conversations. The best working example would be just what we expect was Justice Stevens' work with Justice Kennedy in the detainee cases. The court uh, uh, had denied cert, then came back into the case and granted rehearing, and then uh, the presence, the attacks on the president's policies were upheld. And I think you could see more of that. All right. Um Raise your hand, wait for a microphone. Please identify yourself and your organization and actually ask a question. Those are our <laughs> rules. Bill Niskanen, the Cato Institute. Uh, the panel, I think, missed two points. Um, Ms. Greenberg missed the fact that the effect of a new justice on the court depends very much upon who he or she replaces. And uh, Sudermayor replacing Scalia would be a very different court than Sudermayor replacing Souter. And so it's very much a function of who, who, who is replaced as well as who is appointed. Second, uh, Professor Rosencrantz, um, this uh, PCLB has a couple of uh, conditions or characteristics that you did not mention that are quite important. It has an independent power to tax to finance its own budget. An independent power to tax to finance its own budget. Yep. Second, it has extraordinarily high salaries, higher than the president, a great deal higher than the people who supposedly appoint them in the SEC. Now, who is controlling whom in this whole situation? This is a very strange organization that may be best described as peekaboo, which is what is usually... Peekaboo, I see a constitutional violation. That's right. uh, comments to that, Jan, Nick? Well, no, I mean, obviously, that's that's exactly right, and I, I'm sorry. I mean, I just assume that you would all – we all know that uh, President Obama, as I suggested, is going to be replacing, uh, we think anyway, uh, liberal justices with liberal justices. So at the outset, it doesn't look like it would change the court, but that's kind of why I got into the story of Justice Thomas. 
you know, when sometimes uh, even when when a liberal justice retires and someone with a different viewpoint takes their place, it doesn't affect the court the way you would think. So absolutely, I mean, the fact that she's replacing a liberal, it's not the same as if Obama's going to be replacing Scalia uh, or even Kennedy. Uh, but, you know, even in those cases, it could have unexpected uh, uh, results, just as we saw with Justice Thomas when he replaced uh, Justice Marshall. And I'd just say you're quite right about PCAOB. I, I just I, I tried to stick with the facts that I thought were relevant to um, appointment and removal. I'm not sure if that's going to if that fact will change the analysis on appointment and removal. But you're quite right about it. It's an extraordinary. Do either, do either of those conditions make it constitutionally suspect? Uh, I mean, I think it's constitutionally suspect with or without that. So, I, so, so I don't think that's I don't think that fact I don't think that fact changes the analysis. But you're right that it's an extraordinary uh, entity. I'll only say that I'm sure I missed more than two points. <laughs> I think there was a question here. Uh, name's Larry Tidrick. I'm a Cato sponsor. Three. Three points, two to Ms. Greenberg. Could you just bring the microphone closer to your mouth? Oh, okay. Ms. Greenberg, have any idea why Thomas doesn't ask questions? Number two to you, um, I, I had read somewhere that Sotomayor had a habit of retrying the facts of a case when she was on the appeals court. And uh, third point, Mr. Shapiro, could you briefly dis- say anything you had a paper you wrote that the senators, uh, uh, mentioning five questions senators might delve into when questioning Justice Sotomayor. Could you d- mention how how that affects what you might see in the future? Thank you. Me first. Um, you know, I mean, it's obviously well known that Justice Thomas doesn't ask questions at argument, or rarely. Uh, which is striking because this is a very uh, hot bench uh, with very active questioners. The other eight, and it looks like our new Justice Sotomayor, like I said, is also going to be quite active. So it makes it even more striking uh, at this court compared to, say, courts 20, 25 years ago to have been Justice Thomas's silence. And, um, you know, some people have taken that to mean who, you know, come and see the court that he's disengaged. Uh, you got, I mean, so many times when I go out and talk about the court, uh, people say, you know, Thomas, you know, I saw him and he was sleeping or he wasn't listening. Uh, you know, all of which, you know, I, is um, uh, unfair. He's very engaged. Uh, and as my comments reflected, he's, he's very um, independent and, uh, you know, articulating views on the law that none of the other justices really are. He's a, a very, I think, important voice on that Supreme Court. His voice just isn't heard on the bench, and there's a reason for it. I mean, I've talked to him about this at some length. He thinks that, and he's said it publicly, he thinks that the arguments uh, have kind of degenerated into um, uh, a situation where the justices are talking just to hear themselves talk, and they don't really care about what the answer is. They're just trying to use that argument uh, to make their own points to their other colleagues. And, you know, he kind of says it's just like family feud, and I really just don't want any part of it. Um, he has asked questions. It's not typical, um, but it's usually, and I think interestingly, uh, when I've seen him ask questions in cases involving race, and it's almost always at 
the end, the very end of the argument, almost like he, I mean, someone doesn't ask his questions or they're, in his view, not showing off uh, as his colleagues, he thinks, do sometimes up there. Uh, so he will lean forward and, and uh, ask a question, but it's unusual. And it's not a reflection of all on how engaged he is or the quality, the very high quality of the work that he's doing on that court. He just philosophically thinks oral arguments aren't that useful. Now, our Chief Justice, obviously, being one of the greatest oral advocates of his generation, uh, has a very different view about the, the usefulness of oral argument. Um, as far as Sotomayor goes, uh, you know, how she was as an appeals court judge, the one thing, I mean, obviously it'll be now, she can kind of rethink a whole bunch of things uh, because she um, will be looking at some of these cases anew. Um, that won't be the precise issue, but I thought it was diff- interesting in the campaign finance arguments, uh, you know, when we finally saw... Uh, Justice Sotomayor there speaking for the first time. And, of course, you know, we were all, like, wondering, what was she going to be wearing, you know, and, you know, Justice O'Connor. I don't know if any of you guys saw these terrific interviews that the justices gave to C-SPAN that are going to start, what week is this? The first week of October. They released some of them. And so there was this wonderful exchange between Justices Ginsburg and O'Connor about how it was, like, such a pain to, like, make those black robes work for a woman. You know, and, like, the lengths they had to go to, and O'Connor even had to, like, find something out in France, of course, you know, the judicial uh, fashion capital of the world, I guess, the collars. So, because the collars are made for a man. So there's a point here, don't worry. You, I know, my, you know, I know I tend to digress. But at any rate, so, you know, she has on this very nice, stark collar uh, that was a gift from Justice Ginsburg, which was actually very nice. Um, and then she... Uh, kind of true to her form, I think, her questions were really grounded in the experience that a federal appeals court judge would have, which is what is what what is the record below? She's coming on, you know, as an experienced lower court judge. And as we saw the Chief Justice in comments last week at the University of Michigan talking about, that's, a, I think, a, some of her experience looking at the record, um, particularly as a prosecutor, um, and her what she will bring to that bench will be pretty valuable, I think. Um, the gentleman was referring to a, an op-ed that I had in the Christian Science Monitor uh, right before the hearings. I don't remember which exactly five questions I listed there as, as my five to ask. I know the Second Amendment was not one of them. Uh, that wasn't one of my top five concerns with her, as, as uh, unlike some people. Uh, I know property rights was one uh, because she had this questionable case, all, almost a, a repeat of, of Ricci, really, a squib of an unpublished opinion, a summary disposition, a uh, 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 village of... Uh, Didn't versus Village of Port Chester, where just uh, summarily, you know, dismissed the property rights uh, concerns. That really wasn't asked about that much. Uh, Ilya Soman, who's also a, a Cato adjunct scholar, is a professor at the at George Mason Law School, testified about that case. Um, you know, a, a few questions were asked, and she just said, well, that's just precedent. I was applying law to facts. That, that, that's the mantra, of course, now going forward for all uh, Supreme Court nominees and judicial nominees. This is going to be the Sotomayor standard. You know, No, I will not be an, an activist. Yes, I will just apply to the law, to the facts. Uh, um, you have to repeat those words. If you get anyone wrong, then you have to say that again the next week um, with no media presence in a separate room in the White House. Make an allusion to the... The, the, the missed um, oath of office. But anyway, um, the origin of privacy rights was another one that I was uh, concerned about. You know, whether it's, you know, Roe v. Wade and, and Griswold and all of these privacy, sexual privacy cases are based on, right, you, you look at the Constitution and you kind of hold it like this, and apparently there's 
emanations that when they overlap, they form, I mean, it's not in the Cato Constitution, so don't look at this one. But I think, I think the ACS Constitution might do that for you. But anyway, is, is it that where the origin of privacy and other un, unenumerated rights are? Or is it the Ninth Amendment? Is it the Privileges or Immunities Clause? And where do economic liberties fit in all that? So that was another question. That really was much too complex to get into. And to the extent it was, as for uh, all uh, all the Q&A that went on, she was, you know, as Jan said, coy or saying a, saying a lot but not saying anything or, or being uh, completely disingenuous. The use of foreign law was another question. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, but you, you look at the transcript and you look at some of the commentary, it's, 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 it's all there. You know, she has pledged. Um, in fact, where she's made clear statements, like on the use of foreign law, that, that you know, pleases someone like me who doesn't like it being used, uh, you know, like Nick, obviously, you know, one of whom might have said, you know, Nick's run, uh, you know, uh, written and testified heavily on this, on this issue. Um, you know, she said all the right things about, you know, how not to use foreign law, but that is diametrically opposed to, you know, her writings and speaking uh, prior to that, and that goes for, you know, even the, the wise Latina issue, uh, you know, more than any other, perhaps. Uh, as an indication of kind of postmodern subjective judging, et, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, she's sort of danced around, somewhat answered my questions. I, I wasn't satisfied. In the end, I recommended that uh, following uh, Arlen Specter and his vote at the Clinton impeachment, that the case for her confirmation was not proven, and, and that, that kind of was my position. Ilya, maybe just uh, sure. Maybe just a comment on the Sotomayor uh, mantra, as you say. I mean, you know, quite extraordinary thing happened at the hearing that I think didn't, people didn't focus on quite as much as I would have thought. Um, the uh, Sotomayor was Justice Sotomayor was asked, um, uh, "What do you think of President Obama's standard for uh, being a judge? What do you think about what he's said?" on the topic of empathy and its role in judging. And she said in no uncertain terms, I disagree with that. I I disagree with that. So, uh, you know, Jan referenced um, uh, that Justice Souter turned out to be quite different from what George H.W. Bush would have predicted or would have expected or hoped. But this is something really extraordinary. This is at the Senate confirmation hearing, the nominee saying, I disagree with the president who nominated me about what makes a good judge. I mean, this is really quite an extraordinary thing. I mean, I, I guess if I'd been a senator, I would have, you know, I would have wanted to press on that. So really, and did, did you, did that come up when you were talking with, did you, did you tell President Obama that you actually are 180 degrees opposed to his view of what makes a good judge? Did that give him pause at all, or did it give you pause about accepting that? I mean, it was, it was quite an extraordinary thing. So I'm, I was just I was surprised that people didn't talk about it more. Could I, could I also add on that, Nick, too? I think one of the really interesting things about her confirmation hearing, when you think about the, uh, the fact that, you know, it's a decisive Democratic majority. I mean, this wasn't a situation where you had... Um, a Democratic president trying to get someone confirmed with Republicans in control of that Judiciary Committee. And I thought her answers to some of these questions um, were just absolutely baffling, uh, particularly when she's asked about the living Constitution. You know, you've got 60 votes uh, in the Senate. Why not articulate uh, the view, uh, the liberal view for interpreting the Constitution? Um, You know, Justice Breyer wrote I mean, you'd skim his book, a first-year law student, I think, should have been able to do that, and and I was going to read this, but this is how she, uh, this was her response, whether it's the Constitution, a living Constitution. 
Um, now, you know, obviously Justice Scalia and, and uh, Breyer have debated this at Federal Society events. I mean, this is, you know, the kind of the, you know, conservative views, no, the Constitution's dead. Uh, that's what Scalia thinks. So she says, the Constitution is a document that is immutable to the sense that it's lasted 200 years. So this is good for us to think about on Constitution Day. Um, the Constitution is not changed except by amendments. It is a process, an amendment process that is set forth in the document. It doesn't live other than to be timeless by the expression of what it said. I mean, that again, I mean, that, if you go back and look at how Justice Breyer answers some of those questions where he really does talk about how, you know, the, the view that the Constitution evolves uh, as society evolves and it has to be kind of, uh, again, totally the opposite of what someone like Justice Scalia would say, um, I, I thought was just striking. Now, I don't think that Justice Sotomayor is going to end up surprising uh, uh, the White House like Justice Souter did, and I don't think you probably do either. Um, but what I did find striking about those confirmation hearings was what does that say uh, when you've got that many votes in the Senate uh, and your nominee is really unwilling to kind of articulate, like John Roberts did, I think, uh, the conserve, the flip side uh, uh, of your judicial philosophy. Maybe I could just step in for just a second the, uh, on the sort of collective beatdown of Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, I I do think that it's right that two things that have been said are absolutely right. One is that the hearings are very disappointing. The second is that it's really striking how not just from the nominee, but also from Democratic senators themselves, with the possible exception of Sheldon Whitehouse, and maybe a little bit of Al Franken, but it's still so hard to think of Senator Al Franken. I couldn't focus. That's entirely. true. Um, is he really a senator? Because I know he, he played is, one on TV. He's but. really like, a senator. What's he doing and up there? <laughs> interestingly, but the amazing thing is if you're able to look past that, at least in the first time that he started talking, he was actually very impressive, but it was very hard to, you know, he was he, he tried and was, I thought at the beginning succeeded in being very substantive. The um, You may not agree with him, but he was really engaged. Now, the on the question, though, of whether this is somehow a new development that the nominee, uh, so disappointingly to those of us who want to really debate the issues and hear an honest discussion about them, the, the idea that this started with Sonia Sotomayor, I'm afraid, is not quite, I think, an accurate reflection of what's happened. Over the past several confirmations, the process from the left and the right has become vapid and empty. Uh, the questioning is from both sides, not nearly as detailed as it should be. Nominees are allowed to get off the hook. And I think it's been a while since we've had a process where we got honest questions and answers from either side. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, uh, thoroughly honest answers. Now, I do think that, as Jan describes, John Roberts and Sam Alito described a relatively conservative judicial philosophy. But to, dis to sort of juxtapose by implication their uh, confirmation hearings as these open, honest discussions of everything that the nominees believed, I just don't think is really quite reflects what happens. I think that we, and, and to call this the Sotomayor standard, I don't think is, is accurate. I think it's a process that we as American citizens really ought to be very distressed about on all fronts uh, with our senator's performance, with our nominee's performance, and hope and say if we're, if, if we're really going to go to the bother of having this, we're going to insist on, on real, honest uh, uh, discussion. In, uh, in 1962, when President Kennedy appointed Byron White, the hearing lasted 15 minutes and consisted of three questions. Uh, I think there's a hand back there. Yep. And I think this is going to have to be our last question, unfortunately. 
I'm Henry Lord from DLA Piper, and I had a question for Ms. Greenberg and a quick comment for Mr. Goldstein. On this foreign law question, do you see that, particularly in these upcoming cases you talked about, as a bit of a sliding scale? For example, as I remember in the death penalty uh, juvenile case, there was one country that had a similar policy, and that was Somalia. Um, in the entire world. I understand, and maybe I'm wrong, that with respect to life without parole for juveniles, there's no other country that has that as a policy. There are incarcerated for life, as you said. Well, do, do you think that capital case. Has, will have an effect on the willingness of the court? In other words, it's sort of a hard case, um, a somewhat embarrassing situation to lead some members of the court at least away from this mantra about no reference ever to foreign law. No, I think Again, that... And could I just make a quick comment? I think also in your cross case, another um, splendid thing that Congress did was to say that no money uh, appropriated to the Park Service could be used to remove the cross from the park. But... No, I mean, I think that the, the lines have been pretty clearly drawn on the proper or improper use of foreign law. And uh, my guess is that Justice Sotomayor will be the fifth justice on that court who sees it somewhat useful, uh, with the four more solid conservatives saying no uh, and agreeing, again, as Justice Scalia would say, that the use of foreign law is basically like looking out in a crowd and just picking your friends because it's very difficult to compare, as he would argue, um, our our system and our laws and our sentences uh, with foreign countries who may have um, uh, those sentences for only a narrow uh, group of crimes or it, it just doesn't add up. So that's why, and I think you're going to have those four pretty those four votes will be, I think, solidly against uh, using foreign law for those reasons. But I think Sotomayor, uh, despite um, you know, I think some of her responses, and as Nick, uh, of course, uh, really examined this in his testimony, her hearings, uh, is is likely to uh, side with Ginsburg uh, and Breyer and Stevens and Kennedy that it can be useful in helping understand some of those cases. Okay, before we thank our panelists, just want to advise you to stay in your seats. We're going to move right into the Simon Lecture. Um, with that, thanks very much. Well, we get out of our seats. Yes, we get, we get out, out of our seats. <laughs>